we are resuming our series through Ephesians, our journey through the book where we are exploring the glorious grace of God. And as we explore that grace of God, we are getting to the very part of the journey where God is going to zero in on the individual members of His body and give specific instructions to individual people. Now, he's been doing this, beginning in chapter 4, he's been doing this collectively to the church. He's been telling the church, this is how I want you to walk. And five different times in Ephesians 4 and 5, the Apostle Paul has laid out a walk statement. And we talked about that earlier. We talked about the fact that the word walk means live your life. There is a particular way that God wants the church to walk collectively. And and it's very different than the way you used to walk before you came to know the Lord. There was a way that you used to walk, and it's described for you in Ephesians chapter 2. When you were dead in the trespasses, in your trespasses of sin, in which you once walked following the course of the world. So there was a way you walked as an unbeliever, and now that you have been made a part of this amazing body that Christ is leading now, there is a way that God wants you to walk. In fact, he's laid out a series of good works that he wants you to walk in. You can see that in chapter 2, verse 10. He describes this way of walking to the church as worthy. There is a walk that is appropriate to something that is now true about you. And so he starts off in chapter 4, and he talks about what that walk looks like when you are together as the church, and what it looks like when you go out into the surrounding pagan culture. He talks about the fact that this is a walk of love, that this is supposed to be a walk of light as you uh, as, as God's lights, you reprove the works of darkness. And then we get down to the end of chapter 5, and we find out that this walk is a walk of wisdom that is enabled by the Spirit of God that is controlling you. And that's where Paul zeroes in on individual people. And he says, all right, now that we've talked about what it looks like collectively, we're going to now come as the household of God, and we're going to zero down on what individual members of that household should be doing as they strive to live out their faith and as they strive to walk worthy of this immense calling. And so he's going to talk to wives, and he's going to talk to husbands, and he's going to talk to dads, and he's going to talk to children, and he's going to talk to masters, and he's going to talk to servants. And before we get into those individual instructions, if all we do is just look at the instructions without a much bigger context, it's going to be limited to that little relationship. So for those instructions to make sense to us and to actually impact us, we need to see how they connect to a much bigger plan that God is unfolding. And that plan is described for us six different times in the book of Ephesians. And the plan is described for you in a term that Paul uses, and that term is the term mystery. 
And so we want to talk a little bit today about the mystery, the magnificent mystery of God's grace that He has made known. Because if you remember back to our understanding of the word mystery uh, two weeks ago when we talked about it briefly, we noted that the word mystery is not a riddle, a mystery that you go to uh, you know, the Barnes and Nobles and buy off the shelf, or maybe you download it on your Kindle and you start reading, is actually a complicated riddle that an author has put together. And as the book unfolds, you are tracing out the pathway of that riddle. And you're trying to figure out who did it, or, or how it was done, or, or some aspect of this riddle. And the author is trying to consistently keep you off balance So that when you get to the end of the book, there is this big reveal. There is this aha. And you're like, oh, I can't believe it. I I didn't think you did it. That's why I told you earlier, you take all the stress out of it when you go to the end and you read that first. It makes that so much of a better experience. Because you have, you, the disclosure has already happened, right? So, When Paul uses the word mystery in Ephesians, he's not talking about a riddle. He's talking about a secret. There's a big difference between a secret and a riddle. And especially when God is the one who is holding the secret. Because when God is holding the secret, there's a reason. And you will never penetrate the secret. You'll never know the secret until God chooses to reveal it. And the amazing thing about grace in Ephesians is this. There is a secret that God has been working on since before the dawn of time, and it involves you. But he never revealed that secret until the time was right. And when the time was right, he unveiled that secret. He disclosed the plan. And so what we want to do this morning is we want to trace that plan out in the book. Now, there's a lot of things that I I would really like to say about that plan. and, And I actually wrote down a bunch of things. But for time's sake this morning, here's what I want you to understand. At the heart of the plan is a peace that God is making. There is a peace that God is making. And it is a peace like no other peace you've ever experienced or you've ever heard of. It is is a peace at cosmic levels. The Hebrew nation had a word for this. If you ever go to Israel and you meet somebody in Israel, they will greet you with this word. You remember the word? Shalom. And when they take their leave of you, they'll use that same word. They'll they'll say goodbye to you, and as they say goodbye, it'll be shalom. And when they use the word shalom, it's not just talking about, hey, I hope you have a good day. I hope you don't have any conflicts today. I hope you don't get in an argument with your kids or your wife or your husband. I hope you don't have any sort of conflicts today. It's not the absence of conflict. 
The idea of peace is a full-orbed well-being. We hope that life for you as is as it should be, that you would have the full pleasure of God and you would enjoy the full blessing of God on your life. That's shalom. Which, by the way, is the very first thing Paul wants you to know when he opens up the book in the greeting of chapter 1. Listen to how he says it. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Here's what I want for you, Paul says. Here is shalom, grace to you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That's shalom. That you would enjoy life in the fullest sense with the pleasure of God and the full blessing of God upon you. Now, how in the world did God bring that about? And so, Paul is going to take this plan that he is going to unfold for you, and he has five ideas that he's going to lay out for you about the plan. Now, the reason this plan is so important, the reason that God is working out shalom in the universe through this plan, the reason that our understanding of this plan is so important is is that that it would have a word-energized transformation of our life. I mean, when we see what God is up to, it should change us. It should affect our values. It should affect what we live for. And then the second thing that it should do isn't just transformational. It, it should create in us joyful, thankful celebration. That, that we truly become a people who celebrate what God has done. You know, we sang about it this morning. I don't know if you noticed the hymns that we sang. We sang an older hymn, and we, or more traditional hymn, and we sang new hymns. But all of the hymns that we sang together celebrated an aspect of this amazing mystery that God gave us. And, and I know in my own heart, as I stood there, I was rebuked. I kept asking myself, am I singing and celebrating what God has done? Or am I just standing here and, and just singing? Am I entering in with thankful celebration and joy to the great thing that, that God has done? And so let's talk about this mystery that God has disclosed. And the first thing that Paul wants you to know about is in chapter 1, beginning in verse 9 and going through verse 10. And I've called it this way. I've described that part of it as the nature and disclosure of this mystery. We talked a little bit about the nature of a mystery as a divine secret that God reveals. It's used in the Old Testament in the book of Daniel. You remember in Daniel where Daniel was called upon by the king to interpret a dream, and all of the other magicians came to the king and said, okay, tell us the dream, and we'll tell you the interpretation. And the king went, ah, 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 ah. That's in the Hebrew. You have to know Hebrew for that. He said, no way. You have to tell me the dream, and then you can tell me an interpretation. And the reason for that was if they couldn't tell him the dream, then how in the world were they going to be able to tell him the interpretation? 
And the uh, magician said, oh, that king, that is not fair. That isn't how it works. Now, let me tell you how it works. In, magi- in the magician world, it doesn't work that way. The way it works is you tell us a dream, and we tell you the interpretation. And the king says, that may be how it works in your world. Let me tell you the new way it works. You either tell me the dream, or I take off your head. And they said, thank you very much. And they went out, and uh, they went to Daniel. And Daniel said, look, let me do something. Let me try. And so you know the story. Daniel went, and he didn't go to the king first. He went to the Lord. And the Lord revealed this mystery. The king had a secret. God had given him a dream. And God, who gave the dream, gave the dream to Daniel, and he also revealed it's secret. That's the idea of what's going on here in the book of Ephesians. There is a secret that God has been keeping, and he is now revealing it. He is fully disclosing it. And at the heart of what God is disclosing is a plan in verse 9 and 10 that he is working out according to his purpose as a plan to unite to regather, to reconcile everything on earth and everything in heaven through a ministry that Jesus Christ is going to do by which he is going to make peace. Think of the devastating disruption, the disorientation, the dislocation, the damage, the division that sin wrought when our first parents fell. Just think about it on earth. Think about the division, the destruction, the damage that has been done to the human race on this planet because of sin. Think about it on a cosmic level. Think about the dislocation and the disorientation and and all of the division that has happened in the cosmic level. I mean, you go back to Job 1 and 2 and you can see it. In, in the text of Scripture where in the presence of God, Satan comes to report all of the rebellion and all of the destruction that he has energized and empowered on the earth. Think about that. Think about the damage, the massive disruption that has been done in your own life because of sin. And multiply that to a national, global, and cosmic level. And all along, in the quietness of the counsel of His will, God has been working out a plan to resolve all of that. To reconcile all of that. And now, He is disclosing that plan. Something has happened Something occurred, a mammoth thing happened that that announced to the world that it was time for God to reveal, to bring out to the open this amazing plan that he's been working on. So what is it that happened? And what happened was the arrival of a champion. The champion that was going to carry out this plan and make peace had finally arrived. And his name was Jesus. And one day on the banks of the Jordan River, there was a man baptizing in that river. 
and he looked up on the bank and he saw Jesus walking on the bank and he pointed to Jesus and you remember what he said? Behold God's lamb. This lamb, God's very own lamb, this lamb is going to take away the sin, collectively, the sin of the world. It's an amazing, stunning revelation. This lamb of God has appeared. This promised champion has triumphed over the wickedness, and he has made a peace. So now that the plan has been made known and revealed, and now we kind of know what God is up to, He is reconciling the entire universe. He is resolving the issue of sin by making a cosmic peace through Christ. What is the content of this mystery? I mean, we, we, you know, we can talk about the nature and the disclosure of it, but what is its actual content? And the content of this mystery is in chapter 3, verses 2 through 7. It was revealed to a man named Paul. Paul was a former persecutor of Christ. And you know the story. There came a moment on a road where he had a vision. And God disclosed to him the very same thing that he disclosed to 12 other men on another road. You remember in Matthew 16, there were 12 men walking on a road and Jesus was in their midst and he had a question for them. He said to them, who do people think that I am with regard to the Son of Man? The Son of Man was actually a very well-known title in Jesus' day because the entire Jewish world was looking for this person who had that title. If you go back to Daniel chapter 7, there was this amazing vision that Daniel received from God, and the vision had to do with someone who was more ancient than time sitting on a throne and somebody coming before him in glorious, literally with clouds, in glory. And whoever this person is, he receives authority from the one on the throne. He receives a kingdom. He receives power. He receives people. And he has a title. His title is the Son of Man. And Jesus is looking at these 12 men, and he wants to know whether or not the people that are listening to him teach and watching the miracles he's doing have concluded that he is that Son of Man. And Peter jumps in and he says, well, Lord, they're thinking a lot of things about you, but they're not thinking that. Some people think you're a prophet. Some people think you're Elijah. Some people think you're John the Baptist, come back from the dead. But with regard to the Son of Man, nobody is thinking that about you. And then Jesus says to Peter, well, what about you? What do you think? He's talking about those 12 men. And you remember Peter's answer? Peter says, we know who you are. We know that you are the Messiah. We know that you are that Son of Man. And beyond that, we know something else. We know that you are the Son of the living God. How did Peter know that? And Jesus said, blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this. You didn't get this on your own. My Father revealed it to you. 
There was a revelation on that road to those men, and and years later, there was a revelation on another road to another man named Paul, and it was the very same revelation. And by the time it was all done, Paul had become a passionate follower of Jesus and a proclaimer of his true identity. And God had given to him a revelation. God had opened his eyes so that he would see the truth about Jesus, and then he had taken him out to the wilderness for three years to teach him what Jesus had really done, the full implications of it. And Paul comes back, and he wrote it down under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit for you, and he wants you to know it. So what is it that this mystery that God made known to Paul, that Paul now wants to make known to you, What is the content of that mystery? And the content of the mystery is this, that in a work that Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, accomplished through his life and through his death, he has made a peace. He has made a peace. And that peace isn't just a peace that impacts the earth. It is a peace that goes all the way up into the very highest places of the universe. It is a peace that has resulted in a reconciliation between the one on the throne and you. Christ has made shalom. How did he do that? How did he, how did he make shalom? How did he remove the damage and the disruption and the dislocation that came on the earth and in your personal life? How did he do that? He made a peace. And he did it in two ways. He did it by a life of perfect obedience that satisfied the holiness of God for you. And then he did it by a willing, joyful acceptance of a ministry that God assigned to him to be your substitute, to be the substitutionary sacrifice that would experience the full wrath of God that should have fallen on you. His life of obedience satisfied the holiness of God and his vicarious willing sacrifice, his death satisfied the justice of God. And now a peace could be brokered. And you know what's amazing about this piece? In chapter 2, verse 14, Paul said that Christ himself is the peace. The peace does not exist in a treaty that God sat down with Jesus and wrote out. It doesn't exist in some document somewhere. It doesn't exist in some agreement. The peace is actually a person. And as long as the person exists, the peace can never be broken. That's why the resurrection of Jesus Christ is such an amazing, stunning thing. Because it validated the peace that Christ made in himself. And as long as Jesus Christ is alive, and as long as he is at the right hand of the Father, that peace is unassailable. That peace can never be broken. And because you are in Christ, that peace belongs to who? It belongs to you. Nothing that you can do in your own personal life can damage that peace that God has made. It's an amazing peace. 
And it's because of that, Colossians 1 verse 20 says that God through that is reconciling the entire world. This is stunning. The very visible, specific evidence that Christ really has made this peace at a cosmic level is in something that Christ did that nobody ever anticipated on this level. I mean, we can sit here and talk about Christ being our peace and celebrate it and be so thankful for it and and, and come into the presence of this spiritual realm that we've been talking about and realize that it's there. But how, how do we know that this peace really exists? How do we know that it isn't just words? I mean, how do we actually grapple with it to the place where it actually is ours? We know that this peace exists. We know that it's unassailable. We know that it has an amazing power to reconcile us to God. And and so there is a specific illustration and example on earth that validates this. And it is the unification the joining together, the reconciling of two groups of people that would never, ever have come together. There was a wall of hostility between those two groups. And you read about those two groups in Ephesians chapter 2, Jews and Gentiles. There was an unbreakable wall of hostility between the Jew toward the Gentile. In fact, if you go to the nation of Israel and you go to the Israeli museum, there is a little block of limestone that is in that museum. And there is a warning on that block. That block is, is warning somebody of death. If you, if you go past this block, you will bear responsibility for the death that will happen to you. That's on this block. It's written in Greek. And that block used to be in the temple. There was a part of the temple where the Gentiles could go, and then there was a low wall, and if you were a Gentile, you could not go into the temple proper, and if you did, you would be killed. And that wall was called the wall of partition, and it was a wall of division, a wall of offense Because if you as a Gentile dared to put your foot over here, you would be worthy of death. And Paul says, you want to know about this peace that Jesus made? He tore that wall down. And now, in one body, in one new body, are Jews and Greeks, and they are equal before God, and they love each other, and they are fellow heirs with everything that God has done for them, and they are members together of one body. This was unheard of. You know, we don't have an opportunity in our minds to really understand the impact of that because we don't live in that world. We're Gentiles. We can't imagine living in a world where the people who were associated with the one true God 
despised us to the point that if we even came close to their temple, they would kill us. We have no ability to understand that. We, we have no sense of the impact of that. That if we wanted to have any kind of relationship with the true God of heaven, we had to deny our Gentileness and we had to actually become a Jew to get there and then we could only do certain things because we weren't born Jews, we were made Jews. And the visible reminder of that was this wall of partition, this wall of offense. It stood there day after day, year after year, letting every Gentile know, you don't belong to God. You have no part in the promises of God. You are not part of the people of God. You have nothing to do with God, and God wants nothing to do with you. You are totally without God. You are outside of God. Can you imagine that? Oh, you want to know about our God? Here's the path. It's called circumcision. It's called conversion to become a Jew. It's called the law of Moses. It's called all of the festivals. It's called all the law of ordinances. And if you aren't willing to do that, you can never have anything to do with the true God of heaven. I mean, that's what sin wrought. And all along the true God of heaven was working out a plan because he wanted Gentiles to be a part of his body. And oh, by the way, if you go back to the Old Testament and you read it carefully, he actually says that. He actually talks about Gentiles. In fact, in the lineage of Messiah, guess who you find there? You find some Gentiles. Amazing. And that brings us to the third thing, and that is the display and the validation of this amazing peace that God has wrought, that has torn down this wall. And that actually has made a peace not just with Jew and Gentile, but with man and God. And you can see this in verse 8. Paul said, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to announce, to proclaim the unsearchable riches of Christ. You know, that word unsearchable is an incredible word. Some of you guys hunt, and I'm not assuming that some of you ladies don't hunt. Some of you ladies are probably better hunters than your husbands. But when you hunt something, one of the things that you often do is you have to track it. And so this word is a tracker word. It's the idea of tracking out, tracing out the steps of somebody. And, and, and Paul is saying, look, there are riches that God has placed in Christ that you will never track because they're untrackable. The only way you're going to know those riches is for God to reveal them. And the way that he has revealed them is through Christ and, and particularly through a group of people that he has formed together. The, the evidence that this magnificent peace has actually been wrought, that, that sin has been dealt with, the dislocation and the damage has been reversed and undone, is in the life of a group of people that have been brought together called the church. And Paul's already told you some things about these people. For example, in chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, he talks about the fact that these people were summoned by the Father. 
They were called, and they were adopted into his family. I mean, in one moment of time, God undid all of the division and all of the damage and all of the dislocation by bringing you into his family with full rights and privileges. In, in uh, chapter 1, verses 5 through 12, these people who now belong to God the Father have been redeemed, they've been reconciled, they have been cleansed by something the Son did, by his blood, by the shedding of his blood, by his death. And then on top of that, they have been sealed and secured and strengthened by the Holy Spirit of God who now dwells in them. This peace was so amazing that it made possible for a member of the Trinity to come and indwell you. You wonder, has my sin been forgiven? Has God dealt with the breach? Has God repaired the break? And the answer is, does the Spirit of God dwell in you? Because if the Spirit of God dwells in you, the only way that is possible is if there has been a full satisfaction of the holiness and the wrath of God. The only way the Holy Spirit would ever be able to dwell in you is for a peace to have been made. And Jesus made the peace. That's why no matter what you and I do, we can never break that peace. Because the peace was never made by us, it never depended on us, and it was never affected by us. There was a peace Christ made, and He made it between you and the Father, and now you are a full member of the family, and the proof of that is that the Father sent the third member of the Trinity to permanently dwell in you, because He wants you to know that. And He wants you to enable, to be enabled to do things that he wants you to do according to that plan. You are the household of God in chapter 2, verse 19. You're the temple of God in chapter 2, verse 22. You are a body of people led by the Son. This would never have happened if God had not made this peace. And that's just on earth. I mean, you want to know if the peace is real? Look at the church. You want to know if the peace is real in heaven? Here it is. Your head, your leader, Jesus Christ, rose from the dead. He was raised up into heaven. He was glorified. He was seated at the right hand of the Father. And he was made triumphant over all of his enemies. All of the cosmic enemies have been defeated. There has been a cosmic triumph. And that's at the end of chapter 1. If you want to know... Did God's plan work? Did he actually accomplish the plan? The answer is stunning. Yes. I mean, let me give you a human illustration of this. How many of you have ever been to the Grand Canyon? Can I see your hands? Have you been to the Grand Canyon? All right. How do you describe the Grand Canyon to somebody who's never been there? You can't. It's like this awesome hole in the ground. It's, um, it's just like massive. It's awesome. I mean, when you stand there, you, you, you just can't believe it. You have all of these words that you just come out of your mouth that, that, that seem so good to you, and the person on the other end is going, uh-huh, yeah, okay, okay, that's good, that's awesome. Can you stop talking about the hole now? Because 
You know, I know you're excited about it, but it's just a hole. I mean, how can you get that excited about a hole? And then you go and stand there, and it is stunning. It is breathtaking. That's the way you're supposed to feel when Paul gets done telling you about this mystery, this plan that God has been doing by which he has brought shalom to a universe that has been totally broken and disrupted by, by sin. Some of you have seen uh, pictures, wartime pictures, of, of a city or cities that have been bombed out and destroyed in the course of the war. And you, you look at those cities and there's rubble everywhere and there's ruin and there's, there's brokenness and there's death and there's devastation and there's pain and there's agony. And you can just look at the people that you're seeing in those images and, and they look gaunt and their faces are, they just, they have this thousand yard stare. They, they just, you just know this has been devastating. And there's a point at which the devastation is so large on such a large scale, you wonder how in the world is anybody ever going to be able to repair that? And God says, I did. Through Messiah. And he made a peace that will result in shalom for all of that. And that's really the fourth thing that we see in the text, and that is this, there is a blessing and magnitude of this incredible mystery that we're reading about and that Paul's explaining to us. And the blessing is this, that this peace that has been made for you by Jesus Christ between you and the Father isn't just sort of this dispassionate thing that some government official made in heaven so that you weren't at war with God anymore. And now you're free to go about and do your own life, and, and so have a good life, and, and, and God's giving you some blessings, and the Spirit of God's in you, and, and now everything's good with you and God, so just have at it and, and do well and enjoy. That is not at all how you should feel as you read what Paul's saying. Paul says, there is a great mystery, a mega mystery about this. And it has to do about how you should feel about the one who made the peace for you because of how he feels about you. And it's right in the middle of chapter 5 where Paul is talking to husbands about loving their wives and he goes all the way back to Genesis to the very first marriage on earth, the marriage between the first Adam and Eve. And he says this, this mystery is deep. It is profound. I'm talking about Christ and the church. There is an amazing intensity of love and passion that Christ has for this body of people that he has redeemed and he has reconciled. There is exclusive devotion and intense passion that he has for them. And the best way for you to understand how Jesus Christ feels about you is through a relationship. And so God said, I'm going to design a relationship that is supposed to help you understand what Christ feels to you. And it's a relationship of marriage. Marriage, human marriage is supposed to help you understand 
the exclusive devotion and intense passion that Christ has for you. That's the purpose of marriage. Now, you didn't know that until Ephesians 5. That's why Paul says, I'm about to unfold something massive about this mystery. And it's how Christ actually feels towards you. Not just what he did for you, how he feels about you. And the only way I can explain that to you is in a relationship that way back at the beginning, God designed to help you understand that, and that was a relationship of marriage. Now stop and think about that. Even if you're not married, you understand this because you've encountered marriages. Many of them broken. Many of them painful. Hurtful. And then all of a sudden, your next door neighbor moves in or you find somebody at work and you see their marriage and it is stunningly different from all of the other marriages you ever saw. It's marked by gracious loving. It's marked by quietness and not contention. It, it's, it's, it's marvelous. And you want to know how that happened. Because that isn't how all the other marriages you're watching worked out. It may not even be how your marriage worked out. What happened? And the answer is God made a reconciliation through the gospel. That's amazing. That takes marriage to a whole new level. We don't do what we do in marriage just so we have a good marriage or we have a better marriage or maybe we have better kids or a better home. We do what we do in marriage because it is the visible illustration on earth of what God has done in heaven and what he is going to ultimately do for the universe. And that brings us to an amazing thing. If you go back to Genesis that Paul just quoted in chapter 5, he refers you to the first Adam who had a wife. And that first Adam was given a wife by God, and her name was what? Eve. And she was the mother of who? All living. So here's the plan that God had. He had placed the first Adam and the first Eve in a garden. And from that garden, they were to fill up the earth with image bearers, They're the only other being in the universe that was given the privilege of creating image bearers. God made an image bearer, and then he gave a unique privilege to Adam and Eve to make image bearers that would know him, that would love him, and that would serve him, and that would worship him throughout the earth. That was the plan. And you know what happened to the plan. And the plan went off the rails until the second Adam appeared. And God prepared a bride for that second Adam, just like he prepared a bride for the first Adam. And the bride for the second Adam is the church. And what is the mission that God has given to Christ through the church to fill up the earth with worshipers? Go into all the world and do what? Make disciples. Do you see the parallels here? And what is Christ doing right now? He is taking his bride, the church, and he is equipping her and he is preparing her so that when he established his kingdom on the earth, that bride will rule over that kingdom with him and and that bride will shine at it. That's what God is doing. This is an amazing mystery. This takes it to whole new levels. Man, I hope your heart is just 
being encouraged and strengthened by this amazing reality that Paul has given. So what are we supposed to do with all this? And that's the final thing that Paul says in chapter 6. That's the final time he talks about this mystery. We are supposed to proclaim and advance it. And we're going to do it the way Paul did it. And so Paul at the very end says, look, I've been telling you about a mystery. The mystery has to do with the will of God. It's something God is doing through Messiah. What he's doing is he's making a peace. He's reconciling, Colossians 1.20, he is reconciling the world to him. He is making a cosmic peace, not just in this realm, but in the realm, uh, in the heavenly realm. That visible plan is being lived out now by a community of people called the church that has been called, summoned, adopted, It has been enlightened. It has been empowered to walk worthy by the Spirit of God dwelling in them. They have been given an armor that will help them to withstand any attack from the cosmic enemies of this plan. And now we are to advance the plan, Paul says, by proclaiming it, by preaching it. And you can see this in chapter 6, beginning in verse 19. Pray for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Paul says, look, pray for me. Let's pray for one another. Pray that God would give us the words to announce this amazing peace. Boldly. Pray that God would help me to speak those words appropriately as I ought to speak and pray that God would sustain me and advance those words through my suffering, through my chains. Paul uses an amazing word. He says, I'm an ambassador. I have been commissioned by God to be an ambassador of this mystery that I'm now supposed to make known to you. I'm to bring it to light. And I'm to announce it to all the Gentiles. And I'm going to need God to give me words, and I'm going to need boldness so that I know how to say those words appropriately, and then I'm going to need God to sustain me as I am an ambassador in chains. In the ancient world, if you were an ambassador, you had a commission, you had a message, and you had chains of office. You had official chains of office that would give Everybody who saw you or encountered you or heard you, the understanding that you represented and were were given a commission by the king. And Paul says, I have been given a stewardship. And the Spirit of God is at work in me mightily about that stewardship. And I have been given chains. I am an ambassador in chains. But Paul's chains are different. They are the chains that Rome forged and put on their prisoners. And Paul says, pray that as an ambassador in chains, the gospel would be unchained. You know what God did with those chains? He used those chains to get Paul to Rome. He used those chains to keep Paul in Rome for two years where he could openly preach the gospel. He used those chains to put Paul, chain Paul literally to the praetorian guard, the the guard that was Caesar's own guard, and members of Caesar's own household 
heard this gospel and embraced it. And then these chains became the occasion to give Paul time to write 13 letters about this mystery where he is going to unfold everything that God wants you to know. The unsearchable riches of Christ have now been made known to you because Paul wrote them down in 13 letters. Those chains were the chains that God used to advance the gospel. This is why in chapter 3, Paul says, don't despise my chains. And then in chapter 3, verse 13, don't lose heart. Don't be discouraged because of these chains. And for 2,000 years, literally millions and millions of Gentiles have heard this mystery. And they have come to embrace the truth that is in Jesus and He has become their peace. For by grace are you saved through what? Faith. And it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should what? Boast. How many millions of people have been led to Christ by reading what Paul wrote down in Romans. We call it the Romans Road. I mean, think about the stunning reality of the wisdom of God to use chains to do that. You know, you have your own chains. You have your own sufferings. You have your own limits. You have your own pain. And when you understand this mystery, you understand the immense peace the shalom that God has made for you. Paul says, don't despise those chains. Don't don't be disheartened by those chains. Because they are, for you, how God is going to get you to Rome. They are, for you, how God is going to advance this amazing gospel. They are for you how God is going to strengthen you and how when people see the peace that is in your life and they hear the peace that God has made through Christ, they aren't going to be able to explain it. They're not going to be able to resist it because it's not you. It's God speaking through you. And the Spirit of God is going to use your affliction, your suffering, and your chains in your circle to do what he did with Paul. That's Paul's whole point. This is an amazing mystery. So, as we close this morning, two very simple questions. Have you truly embraced this peace yourself? I'm not asking if you prayed a prayer or you went to camp. or I'm asking you, are you in Christ? Have you come to that place where the peace that Christ made through His life and through His death has become yours? Have you asked for it? Have you repented of your sin? Have you come to the Lord and have you said to the Lord, I turn from everything that broke that peace and I have nothing to offer. I need you to cleanse me. I I want the adoption that brings me into your family. I, I want to be a part of this amazing community that you lead and who you love. 
Have you done that? It's not complicated. There aren't like secret words you have to say. There's just, it's a heart cry. You just, you just say to the Lord, Lord, I am so tired of trying to do this myself. I'm so exhausted by my sin. I'm so broken by it. I'm desperate for that peace. And I want it. You can bow your head right now and do that. It's not, you don't have to pray this long prayer. You, you just, just tell the Lord that. Have you embraced this peace personally? And then secondly, second question, are you enjoying it? I mean, are you enjoying the peace, the shalom? You say, man, it's just, yeah, but I mean, I got these chains. Yeah, I know you got chains, right? We're going to suffer. Yeah, I got these limitations. I get it. But are you enjoying the peace? What do you mean by that? Well, remember, Jesus is the peace. He didn't give you the peace. He is the peace. Jesus is the peace. Are you enjoying Jesus? For some of you, that's forged. Like, what in the world are you talking about? Are you enjoying? Are you celebrating? Does your heart fill with joy in the relationship that you have with Jesus? Is is that true about you? And if it isn't, why? Could it be that something has eclipsed that relationship in your life. And whatever it is, it could be a good thing. It could be a sinful thing. But whatever it is that is giving you more joy than Jesus needs to take its place. If it's sinful, it needs to get out of your life. If it's, if it's right, then it needs to get into its proper place so that the source of your joy is not that thing. It's Jesus. Have you embraced the peace? And are you enjoying peace? Lord, as we close our time together and as we thank you for the amazing thing you have done we have no words to say other than thank you lord there may be people here this morning who need to come to that place where they are genuinely born again and there may be some of us who have allowed things to eclipse our joy in jesus forgive us for that and help us we pray in jesus name amen